On this week's 51%, sexual assault and harassment in the military affect retention. They may not have felt like they had much choice if, if it was a very toxic work environment, uh, but they weren't kicked out. And a woman studies the behavioral ecology and demography of Asian elephants. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. A recent study concludes that the cost of sexual assault and harassment in the U.S. military extends beyond the victims. It's also causing troops to leave the service prematurely, hurting military readiness. From San Antonio, Texas, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. When Amber Davila joined the Army in 2011, she planned to stay in for the full 20, or until retirement. She took pride in her communication security job. It made her feel like part of a team and a greater good. I used to joke that I was going to um, eventually become the first female command sergeant major of the Army. That all changed when Davila was sexually assaulted by a fellow soldier in Korea. Even though she was terrified of being ostracized, she eventually reported her attacker, and he was discharged after a lengthy investigation. But for Davila, the ordeal wasn't over. You think you're okay, and then, you know, the commander says, um, you know, horseshoe on me, so everybody kind of moves in. Um... And then suddenly someone's brushing against me and I'm right back in that formation in Korea where this man is torturing me. And it just became overwhelming. She spiraled into anxiety and destructive behavior and spent more and more energy trying to appear fine. When it came time to re-enlist, she had a panic attack. And that's when I decided I, I couldn't do it anymore and that I needed to get out. Davila isn't alone in that decision. According to a new study by the RAND Corporation, sexual assault doubled the odds that a service member would leave the military within 28 months. And about a quarter of troops who were sexually harassed didn't re-up. Andrew Morrell is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND and the study's lead author. We all know, I, I think, that uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment has tremendous costs to the individuals in, involved in it. Uh, but I think less attention has been paid to what the institutional costs are. Using Defense Department data, he tracked the careers of a group of service members who reported sexual assault or harassment. Then he used statistical analysis to figure out how their experiences translated to the entire force. Assaults were associated with about 2,000 more people leaving the military than would normally be expected. Sexual harassment contributed to the departure of an additional 8,000 service members. Most who left did so by choice, often sacrificing retirement and other benefits. They may not have felt like they had much choice if, if it was a very toxic work environment, uh, but they weren't kicked out. After the killing of Specialist Vanessa Guillen at Fort Hood in Central Texas, an independent review found that commanders weren't paying enough attention to sexual assault and harassment. In some cases, non-commissioned officers didn't encourage reporting and shamed victims. Morale says that's been a problem across the military, but he hopes framing sexual assault and harassment as a retention problem will get their attention. Well, I hope that they use it to emphasize the importance of leadership promoting a command climate that is not permissive with respect to sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, kinds of behaviors. You know, I think it's been hard to get those messages all, all the way down in, you know, into the junior enlisted ranks. President Biden recently ordered a 90-day commission to pursue solutions to sexual assault in the military. One of its goals is to figure out how to reorient the culture against sex crimes. Lynn Rosenthal, a longtime advocate for survivors of gender violence, heads the commission. She told reporters in February that she'll organize listening sessions with service members, especially survivors. This commission says 
to that service member, you do belong in this military. You belong. And it's our job to make this climate safe for you to be here. The commission is slated to give recommendations to the president this summer. That's too late for former service members like Amber Davila. Since leaving the military in 2015, she started work for the Pink Berets, a women veterans organization in San Antonio. It supports survivors of military sexual trauma and advocates for policy change. But she says she feels a lingering grief about her service, especially when talking with friends whose Army careers have taken off. I'm Carson Freeman, San Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. I'm Joshua Thompson, classical pianist, artistic director specializing in the masterworks written by composers of African descent. And I'm Angela Brown, internationally renowned opera singer. And this is your melanated moment in classical music. Evelyn Simpson Currenton earned many titles, including composer, arranger, pianist, vocalist, artistic director, lecturer, producer, and clinician. Her versatile skills consequently make her one of the most sought-after musicians in the country within many musical genres. A native of Philadelphia, she began playing the piano at the age of two and began her studies at the age of five. She graduated from Temple University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in music education and voice. Mrs. Currenton was commissioned to complete seven arrangements for the Carnegie Hall concert featuring Kathleen Battle, Jesse Norman, and the chorus and orchestra of New York's Metropolitan Opera. Many additional orchestras have performed her works in the U.S. and beyond. Angela Brown. And I'm Joshua Thompson. And this has been your Melanated Moment in Classical Music. And the second feeling of the Tuscan. Whoa, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me, it's mighty clear. It's wonder of an elephant is very like a this next story comes to us from Wyoming Public Media's podcast, Human Nature. Host Erin Jones introduces us to an elephant researcher looking for a sign. Then she met a king. Sherman Da Silva grew up in a place where elephants were as ubiquitous as cats and dogs. I grew up in Sri Lanka, and elephants are a very, very big part of the culture in Sri Lanka. When I was growing up in the city, they were just kind of always part of the background where they would be part of, you know, festivals and you know, sort of cultural events and, and you could see them at the zoo and everything like that. And Asian elephants were just sort of so commonplace, I thought. From the time that I was a kid, 
I was just fascinated. I loved animals. I don't know if that has something to do with being an only child, because <laughs> I didn't have any siblings. Um, I had to sort of occupy myself a lot. So I kind of had these imaginary, I had these little plastic toys that I used to play with that I pretended, you know, were these wild animals roaming savannas and forests and things like that. And I watched, I just ate up nature documentaries. Like strangely, because I grew up in a city where I didn't really get to see wild animals aside from the occasional trip to the zoo it was just like such a, a enticing thing you know just a mysterious thing and my family wasn't very kind of nature outdoorsy like we didn't do a lot of stuff we didn't even i didn't even know national parks existed in sri lanka at the time that i was growing up that's how kind of sheltered i was when I finally later on had to choose a sort of career path, I knew, I just, I just always knew I wanted to study animals, study biology, study uh, behavior in particular, just because it, I found it so fascinating. And in particular, Sherman wanted to study social behavior, communication. It goes back to, I think, also being an only child and having a vivid imagination because I had to keep myself busy. And, you know, if you don't have other people to talk to, you talk to animals. And I was interested in you know, whether there was anything like human language or what we call, we call, you know, language in the animal world. So when it came time to choose an animal to study, Sherman had a list of animals that used language. One of them was Asian elephants. When I first went into the field, and my my first year, my advisors gave me some sort of really general advice: <laughs> go out and you know pick a site, learn the individuals. That's that's all they told me. So I said, okay, you know I had no experience being out in nature really. I had no experience being around elephants. So my first summer, that was in like 2005, I went to try to sort of scope out where to work. Sherman's options were two national parks in Sri Lanka. The first was Yala National Park, which was appealing because people had done elephant research there before, so she wouldn't be starting from scratch. After a few days of sort of going into the park, I realized I wasn't seeing that many elephants, and it didn't seem like there, were, there was enough for me to actually do a, a behavioral study with. The other park was Utawalawe, which nobody had done elephant research in. When I went to Utawalawe, there were just tons of elephants. <laughs> they were just coming out of the woodwork, it seemed like. But I kind of it was very ambivalent about starting something on my own, like no one had worked there substantially before. I would have to start everything from scratch. At times like this, I get a little spiritual and I look for direction. And so I started wishing, you know, for a sign of some kind, like, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? So one day, Sherman was in the park. In Asian elephants, females don't have tusks. Only the bulls can have tusks. And not all bulls have tusks, so they're very rare. 
people paid attention to the Tuskers. One particular bull in Udawalawe was named Raja, which means king. The first time I saw Raja, it was at a distance. We drove around the park to this very far corner of the park, the very tippy top of the reservoir, the Udawalawe Reservoir, which the park gets its name from and the river that it also gets its name from. And I saw this really distant white gleam, and that was Raja's tusk. And so I kind of looked at him through my binoculars. I wish we could see, see him closer, but, but he was too far away, so we left, and we decided to come back the next day. The next day, we came back. We rounded a corner, and he was just right in front of us. And that was my first really up-close encounter with a big bull. He was an adult male, prime of his life, probably in his 40s, maybe even his 50s. He was, at least to me, I'd never been around any elephants before. He seemed like a towering figure. And as we stopped there and we were looking at him, he moseyed along, just kind of nonchalant, kind of ignored the vehicle. He went over to the water, he drank, he sort of drank some water, poured water over himself. We are gonna just sit quietly and see what happens. And Raja came around and checked out the vehicle. He looked at us really hard. In the tracker that we had, he kind of at that point started talking and kind of really loud and it was also approaching the end of the day. Because I was also totally inexperienced, I sort of handed over to him and we decided to leave. And I felt like I had the sign that I was looking for. It's really rare to see a Tusker and if you believe in things like, you know, good omens, good auspicious things, you know, that seemed like a good sign. What always seems like where I should be, I decided that I, I was going to study the females and sort of like the social groups. And I was interested in whether there was any sort of uh, matriarchal leadership in Asian elephants as it had been described in African elephants. I was just taking pictures of elephants, trying to identify them and give them names and IDs. And I would pick a group and I would just try to follow them all day. On this particular day, we were on this track that was between the reservoir again in a sort of like grassy hillside. It's kind of, it's incredibly peaceful if there are no vehicles and there's no tourists around. At that time, the whole park was kind of reminiscent of more of an African savanna. It had these really tall grasslands and it had scrub and forest interspersed in areas where there was heavier forest. And the reservoir, which is man-made, kind of looks like this large lake. In the dry season, the water recedes and you get these 
plains on both sides that are short grass and the elephants really like to come out and feed on the short grass and there's the water source too so when the water dries up elsewhere there's still this big water source if you can imagine it's just really quiet the only thing you could hear was the rustling of the grass and the wind sort of blowing very gently and occasionally sort of whipping up and making a roar and so we were sitting there we were watching a group of elephants there was a female in estrus so estrus is when a female becomes comes into her reproductive season and it's very brief for an elephant it can actually be just a few days so during that period these females they sort of attract a lot of suitors so there's a bunch of males that sort of hover around and are trying to get access and so we were watching this group and there was a whole lot of action going on the female was sort of in the middle of it the group was sort of foraging all around there were a bunch of males sort of jockeying for position and we were like completely engrossed in, in what was going on there and then out of just the sort of corner of our eye we could see we saw this gleam again this white gleam of we noticed it was raja he was making his way down the hillside just very casually you know he, he doesn't move very fast he kind of moseys you know walks nonchalantly over to the group checks out the females checks out the herds now the females got really excited they started making noises and chirping and and they do this sort of like coy looking over the shoulder they turn their backs to him and they lift their tails and let, let him sniff them and they all seem to get really excited when when this bull shows up like oh my gosh oh, oh such a fine looking bull and i expected that you know he would he would just kind of stay there but but then for for whatever reason he decided to come and check us out we were you know we were a few i don't know maybe like tens of meters away on 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 the road and he, and he came over to the vehicle this time and i had no idea if he recognized the vehicle you know at all my assistant grabbed the video camera and he was filming everything i was trying to take notes so we're sitting there in our seats sort of holding our breaths and Raja comes in first on one side and looks at us square on and I could just see every every detail of his face his wrinkles his freckles the hairs and he just kind of looked at us for a little while he was sniffing and he was sort of tossing his trunk and curling it and then he like slowly walked over to the other side and that's the side where, where I was sitting and then and then he like stared again it's like being looked at by a whale at that proximity you know you just can't, you can't see the whole animal you just see like this huge face and the eye and then he and i stared at each other and i don't know how long that went on it was really quiet except for just the sound of the wind and i could hear him breathing and the sound of his breath kind of like I imagine is how it sounds when you're in a, in like a cave or something and there's like a gust going through just this big whoosh in and a big whoosh out and it's like this cavernous echoing kind of sound and he did that for a little while and I could see his ears flapping on the edges of his ears is this delicate pink and it's tattered being an older elephant his ears had accumulated all these little tears and cuts and things they were so thin they were like curtains they were gently waving in the breeze and i was taking all this in and i completely forgot to like take notes or do anything i was just like so engrossed in watching this animal up close 
And then there was this tiny little breeze that picked up and one of the clasps hit the steel bars and started making this tapping noise. And then he kind of jerked and I jerked and, and like the spell was kind of broken. And then he moved off. And in that time, my assistant had been filming and we noticed that Raja was had a lot of gunshot holes. It looked like gunshot wounds. He had mostly wounds on his legs and he had one particular wound on his foot that looked like it had been festering earlier and then the park veterinarians had tried to treat it so it, it looked like it was healing. And it kind of amazed me because it told me that this was an animal that had been shot at by people. Here was an animal that could have associated people with violence and guns and, you know, and being a threat. But here he was inside this national park, like inches away from our vehicle, completely fine. It made me appreciate that they can discriminate who's a threat, who's not a threat and without generalizing it to our entire species, for which I was really grateful at that time. In the end, Sherman did learn a lot about the social behavior of Asian elephants, things that our species could maybe learn from too. The social dynamics of Asian elephants are different. They're more egalitarian, if you will. We think that the reason for that is because historically, the Asian habitats where they evolved were probably just more productive or more stable environments. So they you know, had more rainfall, they had more predictable resources in closer proximity. As your intuition might say, you know, when resources are more abundant, more stable, more plentiful, you can kind of relax, so to speak. You don't need as much of a strict hierarchy. When there are more constraints, that encourages you know more competition, which should drive more more hierarchy. But it also has a consequence. It has this interesting consequence that you know in this social structure of African elephants, as people know it, you know, with this matriarch and this sort of centralized leadership. Well, that doesn't really exist in Asian elephants because if you can afford to be more individualistic in your decisions, if you don't need to tolerate being subordinate to someone, if you don't need to tolerate being dominated because resources are available and you can kind of go wherever you you want, it means that you can't really have a leader. It doesn't create the conditions for, for there being strong central leadership. And those are potentially things that might be interesting and could transfer to human societies. And actually, in our study of dominance hierarchies, we drew from literature on studies of human societies and human hunter-gatherer societies, which are also sort of famously egalitarian compared to the more settled and civilized agrarian societies that came up later on. So it's interesting to think about how whether the same sorts of you know, forces might have shaped our early human ancestors. Throughout her PhD, Sherman returned a lot to Udawalawe. We saw him again year after year. 
and he was a sort of the dominant bull in the park so he probably sired several calves but then finally in 2008 we saw him with a an injury to his trunk where the tip of his trunk looked like it had been either caught in a snare or somebody had taken a knife to it it wasn't clear how how it had happened but it kind of was hanging a little bit so we didn't see raja after around 2008 and with that you know i kind of think as this dynasty the dynasty of raja came to an end and then the next dynasty the new tusker his name was sumedha the next dynasty sort of began our storyteller was sherman de silva she's the founder of trunks and leaves a nonprofit that does research and brings awareness to the plight of asian elephants which are much more endangered than their african counterparts you can find out ways to be an ethical tourist at trunksandleaves.org and see photos of raja and sherman when you follow us at human nature pod this story was produced by wyoming public media's podcast human nature to hear more episodes subscribe to the podcast search for human nature with just one n I chose to include this story because, well, it's another example of a smart woman showing how much we can learn from nature. Also, it's about looking for a sign, mixing the scientific with the spiritual. And now it's time I follow a sign of my own, starting a new chapter in this strange life, and leave 51% to its next incarnation. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to 51% no matter in which percentage you fall. I hope you've experienced at some point, and now I'll date myself, a driveway moment, or in today's world, I guess it'd be an earbud moment, when you cannot pull away from the radio or podcast because you're engrossed in a certain story or interview. It truly, truly has been an honor to amplify voices of so many different women. On the next 51%, you'll meet the show's new host, Jackie Orchard. I wish her and all of you plenty of earbud or driveway moments. Go while the going is good Knowing when to leave may be the smartest thing that anyone can learn Go Stop worrying where you're going Move on If you can know where you're going You go Just keep moving on That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1657.